I'm going to invite you to John chapter four. John chapter four, and I, I want to say, like, you, you know, as a pastor, I come to passages in the Bible, and I, I often wonder sometimes, you know, there's a, there's a lot of chapters in Scripture, uh, and I, there, I wonder in my lifetime, am I ever going to get the opportunity to teach all these chapters? I don't, I don't know. Um, and some chapters I teach, I'm like, that might be the only time, this might be the only time I ever get to talk about this chapter. John chapter four is one of those chapters that um, I, I feel like I've talked about a, a few times over the years, and I hope that I get several more times to talk about because this is one of those passages of scripture no matter how many times you read through it you go through it it, it never gets old it's it, you're never weary of, of hearing the story it, it's a, a beautiful story I think that Jesus takes the statements of John 3 God so loved the world gave his only begotten son whoever believes in him will not perish you know it's the idea of God loving the world and giving his life for the world and you ask the question what does that look like and then you just turn to John chapter 4 and you see it playing out Jesus in a very tangible way demonstrating what the extent of his love looks like. And in this chapter, he overcomes uh, extreme social barriers uh, to meet a a woman in really the most uh, dire of circumstances to extend God's grace and God's love to her. And this chapter is a transforming chapter. In fact, when I get to the end of this chapter, my heart just says, yeah, I want to be a John chapter four church. I want to be a part of a church that's a John chapter four church, which I feel like I am, but I want to continue to be that. And and I, I really, in order to be a John chapter four church, you've got to, you've got to understand what it means to be a John chapter four person, right? You can't just say that you want to be that as a church. It's, it's compromised of, as, as of individuals that live out what John chapter four entails. And so this is a, an incredible story, a powerful story to read through. I'm excited to go through this story with you. And in and, and chapter four, verse three, it starts off by showing us what makes this story uh, such a, a wonderful story to allow the Lord to speak into our lives. But what's important to understand, and we just make this as the first point, is that God's grace is really scandalous, right? I mean, you think about what, when you read this story, that's what we're going to come to recognize. But this story is one of the stories I think John tells for us to shock us at, at the power of really God's grace for people. Uh, in, in that regard, it becomes almost scandalous to us. I mean, you know what it's like to hear a scandalous story. It's almost shocking. It you sort of makes you take a step back and, and, and this bewilderment, surprise. And, and you just go through this, all this emotion and it sort of sticks with you to hear a story like that, right? And, and with God's grace in, in this passage, it's the same way. God's grace is a very uh, scandalous thing to consider as you read these, these, this passage of scripture. And in verse three, here's what it says. He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So you remember the story, Jesus starts his ministry up in Galilee, he goes down to the temple, and now he's making his journey back up to uh, the region of Galilee. And, and, and it says in verse four, a couple of important things here, he had to pass through Samaria. Now this phrase of had to is, is to help us understand that whatever, whatever you're about to read in the story, it's, it's important to know uh, that this isn't just some sort of happenstance of random luck and fortune that falls on, on behalf of this lady from, from the Lord. This is very intentional of God. Jesus is saying, look, it's not just I want to go through this region. It's that I, I have a divine impo- appointment that's going to take place. And so we have to go through Samaria. Okay, so very powerful thought to consider as, as, as you look at all that lays out in this passage from this point forward. And then the idea that God says what he has to do is go through Samaria would have been a, a very challenging thought for his disciples. Because what, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to go through a region uh, that, that Jewish people hate. 
We're going to go through a region that you guys uh, like to avoid. In fact, I, I got a map on the screen just to, uh, we'll bring it up on the screen that'll show you. When Jews would travel from Jerusalem, if they wanted to go into the northern route back to Galilee, they had such a disdain for the people of Samaria that they chose, rather than go through Samaria, they would actually cross the Jordan River, and most of them anyway, would cross over the Jordan River and and walk north to cross back over the Jordan River when they got past the region of Samaria to then travel north to the Sea of Galilee. And this would add hours to their travel, make things much more difficult crossing in Jesus' day, you can imagine, over a river. But they would do this just because of their hatred for Samaria. And I asked the question, why do the Jews have such, such a hatred for Samaria? Well, this hatred has been building for hundreds of years. In fact, if, if you study a little bit of Israel's history, what, if you're familiar with it, you'll know Israel only had three kings in the United Kingdom, right? It had Saul, David, Solomon. After Solomon, they have a civil war and it, they split apart. Ten tribes go to the north and two tribes go to the south. Well, the 10 tribes to the north end up being ransacked, attacked, and taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Uh, when, when, People would come into other uh, neighboring nations or people groups and conquer them. When one group would conquer another, uh, they, they, they would take the best of the land, right? They would, they would capture the people, make them slaves. They would take the best of their produce, the best of their wealth, the best of everything they can gather. But they couldn't always get everything and bring it with them, right? They would carry what they could. And, and, and what would be left in a region would still be a remnant. And in order to make sure that that civilization didn't rebuild itself and come back and conquer you at a later time, what they would do is they would say to their people, okay, we're going to this land, we're going to conquer this land. And now, now that we've conquered this land, if you want any of the land in this place, all you got to do is move there, you'll get it for free. And so the Assyrians sent people into the region of Samaria after they conquered it, and, and they started to live life there. And what happened is the Samaritans that are Jewish at the time when they're conquered by the Assyrians start to intermingle with, with the Assyrians and, and they become what the Jews would call the half-breeds, right? And so what, what they would say is they, would have, they had this disdain for, for these people that left their heritage as solely Jewish. And not only that, what ends up happening in the southern region of, of, of Israel, the two tribes to the south, they end up going to, into captivity by the Babylonians, In 586, the last conquest happens in the southern kingdom of Israel. And in 536, they're given permission from Babylon to return to their land. So they were gone for roughly first conquest, 606 to 586, 20 years of just conquering the southern part of Israel. And then in 536, all of those that were taken into captivity, if they wanted to, they were allowed to return. And when they return, they want to rebuild the temple. And as they go to rebuild the temple, what happens is the people in the region of Samaria start to harass them, start to attack them, start to hinder them from that process. And so this built the frustration of the Jews towards this region. They couldn't stand it. And then in retaliation to that, what the Samaritans end up doing is they end up building their own religion, sort of based, pseudo based off of Judaism. They, they believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, but that's it. To rival the temple in Jerusalem, they build a temple in Samaria, and they sort of breathe, build this, this religion that resembles Judaism, but not in its entirety. And so the Jews had this frustration for this region, so much so that they would avoid it. They thought like this, you know, God's grace is good and God can love on people, but not them. They're the unreachable. 
It's sort of to get your mind to begin thinking about where do you perceive that, you know, God's love is great, but there's this one place that when I consider them, they're, they're, they're hell bound. There's no, there's no rescue for that. So it's an impossibility. That was the Jewish idea towards Samaria. And now Jesus in this passage is teaching his disciples otherwise. They're making this trip north and he says, I I have to go to Samaria. Very intentional in his purposes here. In verse five, so he came to the town of Samaria in Sukkar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. In fact, you can still see Jacob's well today. It still exists. You can Google it and watch videos on it if you want. But Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. You know, at first glance, when you read this story, you see the sixth hour, uh, the clock for, in, in Jesus's day, the clock started at 6 a.m. So 6 a.m. is considered zero hour. About the sixth hour means it's around noon. And so this lady goes to the well at noon. And at first glance reading this story, you would say to yourself, hey, when I'm thinking about the middle of the day in the desert, if I'm telling you there's a time I'm going to get a drink, it's probably at noon, right? So what's the big deal? Uh, this lady, this lady's going to the well at noon in order to get a drink. But what the story is doing for us is it's setting, setting a picture. This may not look like a big deal t- to you or to me, but the story is saying to us, this is much like Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night. Remember that in John chapter three? He comes to Jesus in, in, at night in order to talk to Christ. And we talked about uh, why, what, what the idea of night and light looks like in, in the gospel of John, that night tends to be perceived as sin. He comes in the darkness and and the story is saying the same thing to us about this, this sixth hour. In, in Jesus's day, when people would take trips to the well, it was typically done by the ladies and they would go early before the sun came up and they would usually do it in a group. I just a month ago was in Africa In Africa, most of the homes don't have running water and, and what, what the women of the village that I was in do, they, as groups, they would take trips to the well and they would walk several kilometers to go there. And, you know, when you think about getting water that way, there's not very many of us used to the convenience of having water in our home that would like to do that. Uh, but the women of that village look forward to that moment. And the reason they look forward to that moment, it's not because they get to carry water, but it's, it's because that's when they get away from the, from the kids and they get to socially interact as ladies, right? They love that time that they get to spend together and talk about what's going on in life, just going to that well. And, and what it's, saying to us that women would do that early, early in the day in Jesus's day. And what it's saying to us about this, this woman is not only does she not get to take the trips to the well with the women of the village, she has to do it alone and she has to do it in the hottest part of the day. This lady's abandoned. Every trip to the well for her is a trip of guilt and shame because her society has rejected her. Now you think about this for a moment. In this region, the Jews have a particular feeling towards the Samaritans, and the Samaritans are aware of it. You'll see in just a moment. And now within these, this isolated group as the Samaritans, within their group, there is a woman that they don't even like. Could you imagine how she feels? Every day, that trip to the well. The loneliness deep inside of her soul. And Jesus needs to go here. 
You know, when I think about the struggles in societies around the world, people that are impoverished and outcast tend to be the most vulnerable in society. And Jesus, in these moments, has a divine important. And, and this action of Christ was so shocking, so scandalous, that, that the disciples and the woman at the well both responded. Let's look at this. In, in verse 27, look what the disciples say to Jesus. It tells you in, in verse 8 that when they were going to the well, the disciples left to go get food for the group and left Jesus there alone. But when they returned in verse 27, look what they say. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And in this culture, it's taboo to talk to a Samaritan, taboo for a Jewish man to talk to this, a woman, definitely taboo for a Jewish man to, to sit at a well with the ostracized person of the society and have a conversation with. That's not something rabbis do. They're the religious elite, Right? Jesus is doing this. And the disciples are shocked. In fact, the woman herself in verse nine, look at this. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is that you, a Jew, ask, me, ask for a drink from me, a, a, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It just doesn't happen, right? But what we see in this story is, is very powerful, how God's grace heals our guilt and shame. Look at this in verse, verse 10. This looks like a casual dialogue over water. But in verse 10, it says, and Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And it goes on with this conversation between, between Jesus and this woman saying, do you, the woman's like, do you think you're better than, than Jacob? It, this is Jacob's well. Do you not understand the historical power of this well? Like, this is an important well. You think you're better than Jacob, that you can offer me water that's, that's better than what Jacob's offered us with this well that's been here serving our people for hundreds of years? And then in verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. At first glance, this may look just like a story or a conversation over just a glass of water, Right? But do you see the end phrase, what this woman is saying is much deeper than just a glass of water. When Jesus says to her, I can give you a drink and you'll never have to make that trip to the well again. That woman says within her soul, Jesus, if there were a way where I never had to walk that road of guilt and shame again, if there were a way where I didn't feel alone, lonely, different than everyone else, if there were a way I could just feel accepted or loved or, or if I could just hide and never have to get on that path again, if you could just do that for me, tell me, tell me where that water is. 
You see Jesus in a conversation with the water is talking about much more than water. He's speaking to the heart of, of this lady. She's thinking about every trip that she's ever walked down that road, every disdainful eye that stared at her and thought less of her. And every one of those moments reminded her of her guilt and shame. You know, when I think about this lady, I, I feel like in our lives, we have similar struggles. Not, not, maybe not exactly like hers, but we all wrestle with that, right? This idea of guilt and shame. Guilt is what we feel as people when we do something wrong. It's not a bad thing to have, right, in some ways. I mean, it can become toxic for your soul. But, but guilt in itself helps us identify when we've done something wrong. Thank God we have the grace of God to help us understand what to do with that. But guilt helps us identify when we do something wrong. Shame, shame deals with your worth. It's because of the wrong that you do how you perceive yourself. And you can think with the voices that speak at this woman how she may feel. That trip that she takes to the well and she does this because of guilt, some things that she's done wrong we're gonna see in a minute that her society rejects. She walks in that guilt. But now she also, she also takes that journey in her shame. The worth of how she perceives herself based on the judgment of, of others. You know, one of the things is I read this story, it's gonna end obviously in some hope in Christ for us. But one of the things I love about this story is that we know today that the well of Jacob still exists. The same well that Jesus met this woman is still in existence today. And you know, I I hate to say, or, or just maybe it's speculative for me to say this, that Perhaps God's intentions are for us to read into that a little bit. And you can't really die on that hill, but perhaps it's as if God is communicating to us to say, look, that well, that well still exists because that same God still wants to meet you there too. And that living water is still offered for you and for me. Well, what you see is Jesus has this conversation with this lady. He doesn't just end there. I mean, they, they recognize they're talking more about water here, but Jesus doesn't end there. He, he does something a little bit more. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have, have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So what Jesus is, is, is helping her understand here is, look, I'm gonna offer you the living water, but he's really putting his finger on where the battle rests for her in, in the guilt and shame. Like you're looking for worth in your life and you're, you're walking down this, this lonely road and you feel this guilt and shame and in order to escape it, you keep running into the arms of someone else hoping that that will satisfy you. But that's not what you were designed for. And Jesus, Jesus wasn't, it wasn't enough for him just to leave the conversation of water. He wants to help this woman see the, the struggles She's got warring within her own soul. And we're all like that. We are all like that as people. We we walk this path of life and we want people to validate us. We want to know our our worth. We want to know our meaning. We want to know our purpose. And if we we can't discover it, we'll we'll make idols out of anything to help us find our value. Show me who I am. Show me I'm important. Help me get past the struggle 
of loneliness. The guilt and the shame that I feel. And Jesus helps this woman to see, look, the, the things that you pursue in life, they're, they're bankrupt. And in fact, it's ha- enhancing your struggle because when you put your hope in these things and they, they, end, they end up not meeting your need, your, your shame and your guilt, they, they go even deeper. And then in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's saying, look, you know more about me than I, we, we've had a time to even share around this well. I, I know you're not from Samaria. How in the world did you get this detail about me? It's only got to be because you've got to, you, you're some sort of prophet, right? I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. This conversation is a beautiful conversation because it's it's taken a preconceived idea this woman has that's really unhealthy and Jesus is showing her how powerful the Lord is. But here's what's happening. The woman understands, okay, this man must be a prophet related to the religion in some way and therefore she gets to the place of familiarity that she is accustomed to in her religion, right? She says, you, you must be a prophet and I know the Jews worship in that temple and we and the Samaritans, we built a temple. We talked about a little bit ago. We, we built a temple, we worship there. You guys, you guys worship here and I get this. I know what this is like. You're gonna tell me how I need to live my life now and I need to go to God and, and I need to strive to reach him, right? I need to go to this, one of the temples, whichever one you tell me is right, prophet, and I need to put on this performance and reach out to God. And he's, and he's saying, no, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. It's not about the temple. I love, I love what Jesus does here. He says to her, look, lady, I, I, I don't want I, I to pander with the idea of religion. religion. I, I want you to know what the truth is. The truth does come from the Jews. It's not made out of the Samaritan path. He does say that. He said it, it comes from the Jews, but it's not about the temple. It's about a person. And it's not about you reaching up to God. It's about God reaching down to you. Because he who worships must worship in spirit and truth. And what he's saying is, look, it's not about you reaching to God. It's about God and his spirit reaching down to you. It's not about you ascending up to God. It's about God demonstrating and giving his truth to you. Like we don't, we're not the origin of truth. We don't determine truth. We don't dictate truth. That's why it got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden of Eden. We'll become like God. We'll tell God right from wrong, right? We'll become as God himself usurping his position on the throne and we'll take that position and we'll live our lives as if we're God. He's saying, no, it's not about you. It's about God coming to you, spirit and truth. Not about, not about building. It's about your heart connecting to him. God seeks such worshipers. That's what Jesus says. The Lord is looking for those worshipers. He who worships must worship in spirit and in truth. 
It's not about all religions leading to the same place. It's about understanding that truth comes from this living water and that living water has an identity and it's in the flesh. And here he comes before you. It's in spirit and in truth. And I love it. He, he identifies that a little bit further. He gets more particular in that understanding for us. And this, and this conversation is, is it transpires in verse 25 because the woman says to him, she says, look, Jewish person, <laughs> I've been here before, right? You claim you're right. Our people claim we're right. But she says this, I I know the right person's supposed to come. There's supposed to be a prophet that's supposed to come. That's what she tells us in verse 25. I'll read it in just a minute. But she's saying, look, I know know at the very least there is a prophet. He's supposed to come and he's supposed to show us the way. And the reason the Samaritans knew this, at least they knew this much, was because they held to the first five books of the Old Testament. And in the first five books, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says that there would become a prophet like him to deliver the people. And she goes, okay, if you know so much, like, I know that this is going to happen, right? Verse, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Uh, in our English translation, we don't... We don't get this breaking down very well and according to the way it's spelled out in Greek. But the way Jesus literally says this in Greek, he says, I am is the one who speaks to you. I am is the one who speaks to you. And this is a very powerful moment for Jesus' ministry and for this woman. Jesus in these moments, this is the first time in the Gospels that he identifies himself as the Messiah. And who does he choose to do it to? A, a woman that no one else thought was important. But God did. But God did. I love that. I love that about this story. When you think about the power of Jesus, like Jesus could have come before kings dignitaries, rulers, and leaders, people of authority and power and wealth. But that's not the way Jesus ran his ministry. When he's born, he's born in a manger. The people that pronounce his coming are the lowly shepherds. When he ministers, he ministers to the broken and the outcast because what he communicates through his ministry is that everyone is important in the eyes of God. His grace is scandalous and his love knows no end. We don't love that way. We should love that way. But Jesus loves that way. And the first person he chooses to declare to the world that he is the Messiah is a Samaritan woman outcast by her own people. And not only does he say that he is the Messiah, but he also in the same sentence refers to himself as the I am. This is the phrase that God, the special name that God gave to Israel when Moses went to the burning bush. Remember that story in Exodus chapter three? Moses sees a bush burning, but the bush is not burning down, like it's not being consumed, it's just on fire. And, and Moses is curious 
to that and he goes over to it and God says, Moses, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And so he comes before God and, and God tells him to go before the, the leader uh, of Egypt to declare to let the, the Jewish people go, let Israel go. And he says, who am I gonna say to them that is sending me? Like, they're gonna question that one, don't you think, God? And like, when I, when I go to the people and I tell them, the one that's sending me to say this message, like, who am I gonna tell them? By what authority is this even happening? And then God gives them this special name. Ego I me, the great I am. The one who finds the purpose for his existence within himself because he's not dependent on anything to do what his word declares. He can do it because he said it. And that's the same one in this moment talking to this lady at the well. Do you wanna know why I know you can have this living water? Because I am is promising it to you. And what I say goes. When this woman hears this message, this isn't just a declaration of the truth of who God is. This is a declaration of the truth of who God is that gives this woman identity, purpose, worth, value. A God that loves her beyond her guilt and shame that gives her a new identity in him that says to her, you are important because my life will be on your behalf and what greater value can there be than this? This woman, maybe for the first time in a long time, truly feels what it means to be be loved because someone has set aside uh, the, the past that she's lived and just sees the beauty for her made in the image of God. As you read the, the rest of the story, this becomes a, a, a teaching moment for all of us. But I, I love this. As grace provides a new identity, look at this, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to the town and were coming to him. Like, why, why did the lady go to the, go to the well? She was thirsty, right? But now in verse 28, what happens? What does the lady leave at the well? Her jar. The very thing she came to quench, she finds satisfied in in another way. And she runs to the village and she begins to share this with others. Now, I think in, in, in her day, she doesn't just come out and say, this is the Messiah or I know this is the Messiah, but she's saying to the people, look, you need to come check this out for yourself because it's been incredible just in my short time with this person, what, what I have found out. Because in her day, in, in first century Israel, there were, there were ways to vet the Messiah. There were people who had come along that had claimed to be Messiah. So the Jews came up with these rules on how to vet whether or not this person is a Messiah. And she's saying, look, I'm just telling you what I've experienced here, but you need to come check it out for yourself. Her life has has been transformed just by this this encounter with this lady. And then verse 31 to 38, I'm not gonna read through this because we don't have all the the time to do that, but the disciples return in verse 27. They're shocked that he's talking with this woman and they come with his food and they wanna offer it to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm not not eating this right now. I have something else to to feast on. And, And what Jesus is talking about is the need for the souls of the people from Samaria who are coming to him. Through the story of this woman whose life has transformed that village, that area, this town, Sukkar, the people just come running to Jesus. They listen to Jesus for a couple of days and they, they believe in Jesus. 
And they even say about this, look, first we were coming because of the testimony of this woman, but now even in our own hearts, we've come to to know that what Jesus is saying is true. And now the belief is something we've taken ownership of and, and we have put our faith in you. Man, I want to be a John 4 church. But you become a John 4 church by becoming this John 4 person. You walk the same road as the woman at the well. And just like the townspeople, you have to hear his call and come to him. And that's what this story is, right? It's, a, it's what John is sharing with us. It's not just to end in itself. It's to, it's to place that calling in, in our lives. It's to say, look, and, and what are you gonna do? Because this is the, the same voice of God that offered the living water then is, is calling out to us to offer the living water now. Here's how I wanna conclude. I want us to recognize in this passage God's grace doesn't seem efficient. God's grace isn't efficient. Now, God's grace is certainly sufficient. But from our perspective, in a lot of ways, God's grace doesn't look efficient. And let me tell you what I mean. As people, we tend to love when we get something in return. Right? My love is contingent on something. It's sort of this mathematical equation of life. You only have so much to love, give in this world, only so much love to share. I mean, why not do it in order to get something to, in return? But not God's love. Not God's grace. There's nothing that we possess as his creatures that, that he needs from us. There's nothing that he can't, by the snap of his fingers, create for himself. His grace isn't sufficient. Like if I were to say to you today, um, if I give you a choice before you were born, I said to you, hey, um, do you want to be rich or poor? I mean, how many of you are going to pick poor? Do you want to be disdain, the disdain of, of society or do you want to be Mr. Popular? Would you rather be weak or powerful? I mean, how many of you are going to say, I want to be the least popular person with, with no money and, 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 you know, just no wealth in life, right? I just, I just want to struggle. <laughs> Nobody. I mean, some would be like, well, I'll modestly take a comfortable life, but, but I don't want to be lacking popularity and strength and wealth. But Jesus does. Jesus does. He became weak. For what? Not because of what he gets, but because of what he had to give. Certainly we get to live life for his glory, but you see in that his grace is inefficient. Jesus' thoughts weren't about what he could accumulate on the back end. Jesus' thoughts were about giving his life so that you could become who he has created you to be. Have you been the woman at the well? Have you tasted the goodness of God and let him lift you up in guilt and shame? Maybe I should ask it this way. How are you the woman at the well? 
Yeah, one of the things that I appreciate about this story and why I love reading this story is because I feel like every day I get to live this story. Every day I get to realize the inefficiency in me and the sufficiency of his grace. And every day I have an opportunity to make my own trip to that well to sit with Jesus and allow his truth to speak over my life. You know, the most powerful persuader in your world is you. You share a message to yourself every day. And sometimes that message is is tainted by the words of an enemy who would like nothing more than to tear you down in the image that God has created in you. And then there's Jesus, who has given his very life so you can see the goodness of who he is and his favor for you and that your identity could be lifted up in him and every day you have an opportunity to drink from that well. The goodness of that king. And can I tell you, you become a John 4 church when you do. Because that's what you see in this woman, right? She, she drinks from this well, the goodness of this Messiah, and what, what swells up within her? Well, that well comes busting forth and she can't contain it to the point that she runs into the very city that's ostracized her, that's made her walk in this guilt and shame for years, and she shares the goodness of this God with him because she no longer cares about what they think because she found her purpose for us, her existence within him, and she's been elevated in her worth, and she wants them to experience that grace as well because when they come to know this God, guess what's going to happen in their life? They're going to be more gracious in return. You become a John 4 church by being this woman at the well. What about this one? This is the last one. Where's your Samaria? Where has God called you to love unconditionally and see change? Where is that limit that you put on God's possibilities and how he could transform someone's life? Maybe I'll say it like this. Who is your one? And you think about this story and you reflect on maybe chapters like Luke 15. Luke 15 is the story of uh, the woman that loses a coin and searches for it, the, uh, the prodigal son who runs away from the Lord or, or, or even the lost sheep. Where Jesus talks about there's a shepherd who has 100 sheep and he leaves 99 to go search for the one because the one has wandered away. Who is the one? If you think right now, if, if you see yourself as someone who's taste, tasted the richness of Jesus and he's filled you up and he is that living water, where is that, that one person that you know God has called you to go love on unconditionally and share his grace with? In, 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 not in an efficient way, but maybe in an inefficient way because grace is inefficient, right? I mean, it's, a, it's not about what you get, it's about what you give. Where, where is it that God leads your heart to meet those people and to love the way that Jesus loved in that well? That's how God transforms. And that's what God calls his people to do. If we would but taste and see that the Lord is good. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.